Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staber. Are you tired of online dating? Maybe it's time to let artificial intelligence wade through the pool of potential matches. A new dating app called Volar promises to handle the opening moves by sending AI-powered chatbots out on virtual first dates. Your bot asks you questions, then chats with other bots to see whether they're humans might be a good match. Wired staff writer Amanda Hoover tried the service and wrote about it in an article titled, We tried a dating app that lets a chatbot break the ice for you. It got weird. Welcome to All Sides, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Can you start by walking us through the registration process with Voler? Is it similar to registering for other dating apps? It's actually almost easier than some. You know, there are some dating apps where you maybe just have to put like a photo, your name, age, you know, you give that information to Volar. But what you also do, instead of, you know, picking out prompts to find witty answers to or saying where you went to school, where you work, necessarily things like that, it kind of just asks you. And so it's a much more fluid chatting process. Um, It asked me things like, what are my hobbies? What do I do for work? Like, why do I like these things? What am I looking for in a partner? You know, so asking for more traits than maybe height or race or some of these other things that other dating apps might ask you. So you get all signed up. And then does the chatbot decide who it wants to date? And I'm sort of using date in air quotes here. Or do you pick potential candidates? The way that it worked on my end um, is that I would get a notification that there were new conversations and I would open these and there were a couple my first day um, and they were about 10 messages back and forth between the chatbot that I had trained and somebody else's chatbot that, you know, fell within the age range and gender of what I had told it I might be looking for. Then what you can do is you can decide to like request to send a first message to that person, you know, send that message request. A human message. Yes, yes. In a similar way that you might on, you know, like on Hinge when you can reply to somebody's prompts. You're not just like swiping right saying I'd like to match with you if you also want to match with me, you know. People can kind of see that first message and decide if they want to open up that conversation. It sounds kind of like an AI matchmaker. A little bit, but I think it's more like your assistant or your wingman um, because I, it's, you know, not necessarily evaluating all these things and pairing people up, but showing you just a little bit um, about that person and giving a little bit of information about you for then you to decide if you want to continue for a real conversation. So in these conversations that your chatbot had with a potential partner's chatbot, um, what what were some of the questions they asked? Because according to the article, they got they got kind of strange. Yeah, a lot of these would start with a sort of funny icebreaker, maybe. Um, one of the first questions that my chatbot asked somebody was, if you were um, like a kitchen utensil, what would you be? And somebody's chatbot said back, I would be a ladle because I like to mix things up and add things to the mix. <laughs> um, kind of like a corny line like that. Another one, um, my chatbot started the conversation by asking if you know the person had a pet and if their pet were to accidentally launch a nuke, how would it have happened? Kind of imagining these ridiculous scenarios. Um, so those were What two. was the answer to that one? Um, they said something about a cat launching a missile. And then I went into, my chatbot, I mean, went into a long explanation of how a horse would accidentally 
launch one, um, which was funny. You know, I, I made up some interests, then gave it to the chatbot, and I put horseback riding. So these conversations often would insert a horse. And at one point, it gave a name to the horse that I had not given. Um, but I never said anything about being interested in missiles or nuclear weapons or anything like that. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's funny, the the kitchen utensil one, because I think a lot of people could come up with an answer to that, but I feel like it would be, I feel like your chatbot would really have to know you to guess accurately. So like, I think I would pick spatula because it's a really fun word to say spatula or maybe like whisk. <laughs> but I mean, the chatbot would have to know me really well to know that I would pick a utensil based on the sound of the word. So, or in your case, like, you, horse might not be your answer for the animal that like creates nuclear catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think what this is kind of meant to show, and you know, when I talk to the founder of the app, um, these aren't meant to be perfect. They're not meant to perfectly show you and who you are. The answers would get better and better the more time you spent chatting with the chatbot because it won't read your actual conversations. Like it won't learn about you there because that is more private once you start having these conversations as real humans. Um, but it's almost just to break the ice. So you might see something funny in that chat and, you know, decide to open a conversation just sort of saying, that was crazy, you know. Uh, I don't know why a chatbot would say that about me. Like, and it might just be a funny moment that the two people can have. You know, it's definitely not a perfect copy of the people behind the profiles. Yeah, I think that's important to note uh, that Volar developer Ben Chang, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, said that it doesn't train on the real conversations that you're having, but can you continue to have conversations with the chatbot? Can you train it to get better at knowing who you are? Yeah, I didn't spend that much time doing that, but I think over time, you know, you can talk to it more, you can train it more. Um, so it's definitely a very new app as well. You know, this just launched in Austin in December. It's become more available in January around the U.S. So this is really an early look at what we're seeing here. Um, but it does play off of things that people have just been doing on their own, maybe consulting ChatGPT or using some of these other like standalone apps to get better answers to plug into their traditional dating apps like Hinge or Tinder or Bumble. Um, I think what's different here is that both people know that that's what's happening. Whereas on some of these other apps, people could be using AI assistance to come up with lines or things to say um, without the other person knowing that that's being used. Does Volar have any safeguards to make sure that your chatbots aren't having like inappropriate conversations or conversations that you might deem to be inappropriate? I did ask that when the missiles um, conversation just came up because like I said, I didn't put any of that information into the chatbot when I was talking to it. That's not necessarily a thing that I would personally say to somebody or like want to say to somebody, especially as a first impression, you know, in a dating world, it's kind of, I think comes off a little bit odd. So, you know, I'm told that there are safeguards and they kind of responded back to me about um, that particular incident saying, you know, it's on the border of like silly and inappropriate um, because it's not such a violent thing. It's kind of just like an odd, silly little joke that people probably wouldn't talk this way. And it sort of does show that we're still kind of far from how chatbots talk as humans. So it's not going to ask, like, if you needed to bury a dead body, where would you hide it? Hopefully not. <laughs> but it's, you know, if that's that's also, I think, another icebreaker that people sometimes yeah. say. Um, so I think all of that is, 
you know, to be seen, but I'm told that there are safeguards to kind of protect the types of conversations that go on. Do you see this coming? So I've heard a lot that 2024 is the year we put AI into everything. Do you think this is just the next evolution of it and we can start to see it in other forms in dating apps in the future? I think there's going to be a lot of ways that this comes up in dating apps, especially um, like Match Group, which owns Tinder and several of the other biggest dating apps, was saying, you know, to shareholders last year that it's going to start looking more at AI. And Tinder then rolled out a feature that would help people, you know, choose their best photos um, to put their best foot forward on these apps. So I think we're going to see a lot of that playing in more in the way they're integrated. And it comes after it's been just a really long time of the same sort of format of dating apps. You know, Tinder popularized the swipe and most of these apps really play on that ever since. And that's been, you know, 12 years since Tinder was founded that there hasn't been a ton of innovation. So I think with these new technologies being so accessible, there could definitely be some more ways that they are integrated into dating apps. Yeah, I did like what you said about how the ridiculousness of the question could almost prompt uh, an icebreaker of a conversation because, I mean, right, what kitchen utensil would you be? How would your pet possibly trigger like a nuclear warfare? These are absurdly silly questions, but they are the kind of thing that might be a natural opening into a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there were a couple of other times that I just saw chatbots kind of saying, how's your week? And then it was a way to open up like talking about different hobbies or interests that people have um, told their chatbot. A 2022 survey found that nearly 80% of people across all different age groups felt that they were burned out or emotionally fatigued when using dating apps. Um, Do you think chatbots like doing the initial screen is going to help with that? Or I don't know. I don't know how to handle dating in the online age. Yeah, it's we've really seen so many people just openly complaining and ridiculing the apps. And, you know, some people, of course, have met lifelong partners on these apps, but some people have been using them for years and are frustrated to still not have found that. Um, it it could be that some of this helps some people. Um, I think what we really see, though, is that dating apps are the new thing to complain about when it comes to dating. But, you know, you go back and you watch older rom-coms, older sitcoms. People have never been happy with the dating game in, you know, modern times. So this is now just a place to point that blame, I think, a little bit when people feel unsatisfied. That's fair. And I'm sure people, I mean, you go way further back and there's all kinds of stories written about, like, crappy arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is just, you know, the era that we live in. And we see more and more young people report having used dating apps, you know, as you get into younger and younger generations, more people that have been single and come of age in this era feels like you have to try these things. Um, So it's sort of the maligned now going to the bar, going all these places that people have tried to go to find love. It's just now happening on Sometimes people are using multiple apps at a time, and I think we're feeling really, really burned out. What I found fascinating, uh, and this perhaps shows my own age, is that people are using these other apps to help them craft better responses. So you reference things like yourmove.ai and Riz, which I had no idea existed. 
<laughs> yeah, these seem to be, you know, smaller things that also people started using or, you know, really picked up last year with the explosion and popularity of ChatGPT and generative AI chatbots. Um, it seems that there really is like a want for assistance when it comes to making these initial approaches or getting around the awkwardness of dating. Um, I also wrote a story last year about people using ChatGPT for wedding vows or wedding toasts, you know, for people who aren't natural writers or maybe don't feel the strongest um, when it comes to public speaking or conversing with strangers. People really are turning to these tools and there are people, you know, companies, startups taking advantage of that need and trying to narrow the sort of functions that ChatGPT does to make them more aligned with dating. The former in-house sociologist for Bumble and Tinder had some cautions about authenticity. And I think that's really at the heart of this question, right? If you're using AI to help you like do your initial dating, like how much of your authentic self is coming through? Yeah, I think that is a concern. And, you know, like I said earlier, with this app, at least both people know that these conversations are fully AI. So there's a bit more transparency um, in this situation. And it is just a few messages here as well, you know, kind of about 10 um, back and forth before it says, would you like to now like join and continue a conversation with this person? So there, I think there is that kind of oddness and concern that you aren't the person um, maybe starting, but you could look at it from you decide when you want to make that initial approach with the person and you can start with your authentic self from there. That's Amanda Hoover, a staff wire writer at Wired. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking about a European law forcing Apple to make changes to its app store and how it might impact what we download on this side of the Atlantic. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday. I'm your host, Anna Staver. <clears throat> Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, you're pretty much locked into using their app store to download all the games you want on your phone. But that's about to change in Europe. A new law taking effect there in March will put an end to the monopolies and to some of the fees Apple charges developers for each sale. The changes are being closely watched here in the U.S. And here to help us untangle what it all means is New York Times tech reporter Trip Mickle. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some baseline knowledge. When you purchase an app on your phone, Apple gets a pretty hefty commission, right? Yeah, Apple, since the formation of the App Store in 2008, has uh, collected a 30% commission on the sale of an app. And then they take a cut of any additional purchase that you make inside that app, right? Right, right. And then you see this in particular in the world of gaming where you may playing a game like Fortnite and decide, oh, I need this shield. The shield costs a dollar. 
30 cents of that dollar would go to Apple. Yeah, and game makers like Fortnite's developer Epic Games have long said these fees are too high, and they've wanted to steer customers towards websites and other alternatives where they could charge lower prices. And it's gotten so bad here in the U.S. that Epic is actually in a lawsuit with Apple, right? Epic sued Apple. It wound up losing uh, most of uh, most of that lawsuit, and it went all the way to Supreme Court, uh, which decided to not take it up uh, about a month ago. But in Europe, they've passed. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. But in Europe, they've passed this new law taking effect in March. It's the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. So, what does this law in Europe require? The the intention of the law and the reason it was drafted was to loosen big tech companies grip on on their platforms um, and to create new opportunities for smaller companies to succeed with businesses, uh, whether those businesses be, uh, you know, uh, competing um, web browsers to Google's Chrome or, um, you know, competing app stores to Apple's app store. And so some of the things that they've asked Apple to do are allow alternative app stores on iPhones. They've also asked that Apple begin to allow developers to provide links uh, to customers to be able to pay for things outside the app store directly, or even uh, pay for things not using Apple's payment system, which is one of the ways that it's been able to efficiently collect those 30% commissions um, by having people pay with their credit card information right in the app, which would be which would be a big change for a lot of developers. Yeah, these app stores are huge money makers for both Apple and Android, right? Correct. Yeah, they, they generate billions and billions of dollars and Apple collects about $24 billion in profit annually from its app store. So Apple has said that opening this up could come with risks, um, that some of these stores could leave people more open to hacking and other violations. Is that just posturing by the company or are there real risks to having all these alternatives? There are real risks. Um, one of the things that if you go back and you look at the history of, of operating systems and look back at the you know, 1990s and the Windows era when it was dominant on PCs, um, personal computers always allowed you to kind of just download whatever you wanted off the web. Uh, or, uh, you know, pop in a CD and, and you know, upload an app. Those, th- those CDs or those applications weren't always vetted for malware or malicious software that may have been developed by hackers that gave them access to your computer and your personal information. Apple took a different approach. And so when it birthed the App Store, it developed uh, a review system to evaluate apps with human reviewers and make sure that they don't have malicious software, make sure they're not fraudulent or scammers, and then it would clear those apps and send them on to consumers. It also introduced a number of other conveniences that I think we've grown to take for advantage, take for granted, including being able to pop into your iPhone and see where you have subscriptions and just cancel those subscriptions with a click of a button. Uh, you don't have to let's just say, because we don't always love calling the cable operator, pick up the phone, call the cable operator and have them try to persuade you not to cancel a subscription. You just, you just touch a button right in the app store or right in Apple's 
uh, iOS system and, and you're, you're free of that subscription starting the next month. So Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, Spotify, and other companies are preparing new download options for their customers in anticipation of these new rules. Are they sort of just trying to get you, they're just trying to get you to pay for Spotify? Like what's going on there, I guess, essentially? I, I think the best way to illustrate this is to look back at what happened last week. And on Tuesday, Spotify issued a release highlighting how its app in Europe would begin to function starting March 7th. Under its interpretation of the Digital Markets Act, it would begin allowing customers, new customers and new subscribers to see discounts in the app and get three months of service free before beginning a subscription. Uh, it also began said that it would begin taking credit card payments for people who purchase audiobooks. Now, this stands in contrast to what Spotify currently offers in Europe and really around the world, which is no real payment options because it doesn't want to give Apple that 30% commission. Fast forward to Thursday. So that was on Tuesday. This is what Spotify thought would happen. Fast forward to Thursday and Apple issues uh, its own news release outlining what its plans are for uh, compliance with the DMA. It essentially says developers have three options. One, stick with the status quo, keep paying us 30%. Two, you could opt into new European fees and structures. And under those, uh, you would be able to, you know, take credit card fees and do different things that you haven't been able to do in the past. But you're going to have to pay us a 17% commission, even if you take a credit card fee directly, because we will have helped connect you with the customer that becomes your customer. Um, also, in addition to that 17% commission, you're going to have to pay a 50 cent uh, 50 euro cent fee every time you have a download above 1 million downloads. And then the third option was you could be distributed through an app store, forego all those fees, but still pay the 50 cent download fee and also maybe deal with the downside risk of not having that kind of central portal of the app store, which can connect you with the 420 million European customers that, that Apple roughly has, or the hundreds of millions of customers that Apple has. And by the end of the, the weekend, uh, Spotify had decided, you know what, this is too expensive for us. We're not going to do any of those changes we, we, we thought we would do last week. More than likely, we're just going to stick with the status quo. No payment options, no new bells and whistles. Just the same old blank Spotify. You need to go to the website to complete any purchases. So it sounds like Apple still has a fair bit of control, even under this new law. I mean, that's that's a pretty harsh contract. It it is uh, it is. I mean, it's generated a lot of blowback, um, backlash among many developers, particularly those who have already been critical of Apple. In, in, in years past over the fees that it collects. Um, they really saw and lobbied hard for the Digital Markets Act to come forward because they, they believed that it offered a window of opportunity to improve their businesses and improve their offering for customers, potentially lowering price by introducing new competition. Um, instead, what they say Apple did was come up with a system that essentially 
kind of forces them to stick with the status quo. And that, in their mind, you know, maybe that abides by the rule of the law, but it certainly violates the spirit of what European regulators were trying to achieve. So it sounds like it's possible we could see litigation over this in Europe at some point in the future. Uh, almost most certainly. I mean, I, several developers have said they plan to appeal to European regulators and ask them to investigate Apple's uh, plans. Euro, European regulators can't do that until March 7th when those uh, those new fee structures and, and the new uh, outline and guidelines that Apple has planned go into effect. But users here in the U.S. aren't going to see any of these changes come March. No, it's one of these fascinating twists and, uh, you know, interesting changes that's taking place around the world. For years, Apple has, Apple has sought to be efficient. And where we have boundaries around the world between nations with different rules, Apple sought to create kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to its digital marketplace. This was great for developers. It, it created a really, you know, despite the 30% fee, it created a really efficient system where they really just needed to create one version of their app and it could be distributed all around the world. But gradually over time, as governments in Asia and Europe and the US have begun to scrutinize Apple's fee structure and respond to the complaints of developers, there have been new rules that have dictated that Apple has to make changes. And so now what you're getting is this patchwork system where there's uh, different options in South Korea. There are now different options in the U.S. than there used to be. And now in Europe, there are three different options. And, and so developers are having to sit down, scrutinize all of this and make new decisions and also, you know, take on new costs. Because if you have to develop a multitude of options then you have to have the workforce available to de design and, and implement those options around the world. Are folks here in Congress taking a look at what's happening? Is there any conversation around maybe creating similar legislation or perhaps learning from the loopholes in the European law? Um, there are people in Congress who continue to hold tech's feet to the fire um, you know, uh, but there just has not been a lot of momentum around that. If you think back, um, you know, a lot of that was spun up in 2019 and 2020 when there were investigations by Representative Cicilline into big tech's behavior. Uh, they tried to advance some bills and they got nowhere. Senator Klobuchar continues to champion uh, some rules and regulations that would uh, limit the way the app store functions and the way other big tech products uh, operate. But again, those have not been brought to the floor and it's unclear if they will be. I mean, we're dealing with a you know period of time in Congress where there's not a lot of legislation that really advances. And to circle back to the lawsuit between Epic, which is the maker of Fortnite, and Apple, Epic's kind of run out of options, right? Like, that it's kind of, they've kind of lost. They, they have squeezed the lemon almost to the last drop. They do have one drop left, and they are trying to appeal 
Apple's interpretation of one, one small win that they had, one small win with like large consequences that they had in their in their lawsuit. And that was the judge's ruling that Apple violated an anti-steering provision in California law, which basically was saying, hey, you have to allow developers to link out to be able to make payments. And um, the way Epic interprets that is that Apple has to allow developers to link out in a relatively friction-free fashion. The way Apple has interpreted that is it just has to allow developers to do that. And in doing so, it said, okay, you can do that, but we're going to, and you can take payments elsewhere, but we're going to take a 27% commission of that. And we're going to audit you to be sure that you're actually paying us. And so in Epic's, you know, from Epic's point of view, this is like a change without a difference because once you had 27% plus a 3% credit card fee, guess what? You're back at that 30% number that Apple was charging anyway. And that also like, I want permission to look through your books to make sure you're paying me what I'm owed. That, that, that feels pretty invasive for one company to ask of another. Uh, it certainly could be interpreted as invasive and it, and, you know, I would, I would assume that people who are concerned about monopolist behavior would, would say that that also raises some questions about what, what Apple would learn about the kind of um, the value and strength of a business, which may cause it to say like, Hey, maybe this is a business we should explore ourselves. That was Trip Mickle, a tech writer for the New York times. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, CNET editor Russell Hawley will help us understand why Ring is changing its policies on providing footage to the police. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. Ring, the doorbell company, will no longer share home security videos with police without your consent. But there are some key exceptions. Here to tell us what we need to know about the policy change is Russell Holly, Managing Editor of Commerce at CNET. Welcome back, Russell. This has been a pretty contentious issue. So Ring is one of the largest makers of video recording doorbells, and they've gotten a lot of criticism for their partnership with police departments. But up until recently, they've been pretty adamant that sharing video footage with police made neighborhoods safer. That's right. There was... Uh, basically a web page that uh, the police precincts all around the United States could fill out request forms, uh, you know, giving specific date ranges and and uh, reasons for why they needed access to that footage. And 
uh, a lot of those requests would be granted very quickly and without the actual person whose camera you know was the the owner uh, knew that it was happening um, if there was a crime in a neighborhood, then police could request for access from the entire street or in some cases the entire neighborhood to see what direction a potential getaway car would have gone or if maybe multiple houses uh, you know, had been broken into um, or cars and things like that. Um, that that website was uh, was really kind of a black box as far as owners were concerned. And then they started allowing uh, police to post requests for assistance, right? That's right. Yeah. So there, you know, the requests would be a little more public. It was something that the the users had some access to. This was something that had come as the result of a couple of different scandals in which uh, Ring users would open up their app and realize that they were looking at someone else's camera, um, not in their neighborhood or nearby, that it was like a it was a, a mistake on you know Ring's part where they were looking at kind of the wrong thing. And so there was a, a pretty significant demand for transparency after multiple of those events became uh, public. So a more uh, what was called privacy oriented solution was created. And then it looks like you folk, the folks over at CNET obtained property crime statistics from three of Ring's police partners. And you examined the monthly theft rates for the 12 months before they signed up compared to the 12 months after. So what did you guys find from this investigation? The biggest thing that turns up from that is that they're, they're you know, having access to that uh, footage did not have a measurable impact in how many cases were solved or, uh, you know, how many incidents ended in uh, in apprehension or um, return of property. Um, there just wasn't like a substantial increase in, in safety as far as those communities were concerned. So now Ring is removing the request for assistance tool from its neighbor's app. Is that correct? That's right. The The request for assistance tool is something that, that uh, police precincts won't have access to. That doesn't mean that there is no method uh, for video to be delivered. Um, there is you know, still the official request email service that has been there the whole time where you can email the, the security team at Ring and explain why it is that you need it. And this is still something that you know law enforcement uh, have the ability to do um, for what Ring has determined is is kind of a, a good faith uh, you know, effort to to share footage in the event of things like fires in neighborhoods and and things like that to help better determine the source. What's going to be different now is that the the actual owner of the camera will be aware when those requests are being made. So it's what they would define as an emergency, right, or an immediate threat to the public. That's right. So not just somebody stole my Amazon package. <laughs> yes, that no, it you know it's it's you know package theft is still something um, you know that cameras like that are really good for but it is uh you know at the discretion of the user um to to submit that video to police at this point so if i own a ring what do i really need to know about the update to the software that's coming in february honestly the biggest thing is that the the request for access function which i think most ring users didn't even know was there uh is is something that has gone from the the neighbors app um, but what you do have is uh, a really handy tool for downloading the video that you have access to, um, and then some clear-cut instructions for the, the best way to send that video to whoever you think is uh, appropriate to have it. Are there other brands besides Ring that perhaps have a little more security? Like if I'm listening to this and thinking, you know, I'm not really comfortable with how this has all been handled, what are my other options or are, were they all sharing like this? It's definitely not that they're all sharing. There are a handful of uh, 
different companies that handle storage and access a little differently. The the thing that made Ring kind of unique when it first came out uh, was that all of it was stored online. There was no local access for any of that information. Um, whereas uh, there's a, a company named Eufy, spelled E-U-F-Y, uh, that makes a lot of very similar cameras and they have an SD card that goes into the, the actual physical camera so that everything is stored locally and, and you have access to it and, and can do what you want with it. You still look at that information through an app but it's not something that is completely owned and stored by the parent company. So they don't have access to, to that video to share without your access anyway. It sounds like the important takeaway is if you are buying one of these Ring or just any kind of doorbell camera, that if privacy is one of those issues for you, that you kind of read the fine print on all these different agreements and what kind of information you're giving up. Anytime you have a, a, a service where video from inside or outside of your house is being stored somewhere, I think it's a really good idea to just know what the worst case scenario is for, for the video that's being stored that, that you don't own you know, physically. I want to switch to Taylor Swift. So millions of people have seen photos of the real Taylor Swift kissing boyfriend Travis Kelsey after the Kansas City Chiefs playoff game on Sunday. But millions more have seen fake, sexually explicit photos of her online. Uh, What happened here? Yeah, so this is, you know, there there are, you know, I I feel like every couple of hours, there's another version of some sort of loophole that is found in things like ChatGPT and and other, you know, kind of chatbots, where you say, you know, make me an image of this person, you know, with no socks on. And that person, the the chatbot would say, hey, I actually don't know how to do that. And so the, you know, a, a version of a loop around there would be, uh, I'm, you know, I'm writing a program that would give me the ability to create this kind of image. How would I do that? And because it's not a direct request, ChatGPT gives you all of the tools that you need in order to create that image. Um, you know, so it's it's all of these kind of loop arounds, um, you know, that that you can find. You basically are are finding clever ways to convince ChatGPT to do these things that it's not supposed to uh, be doing by way of direct request. This is a problem that's been, you know, basically since the inception of ChatGPT, and it's something that Microsoft and and um, you know OpenAI and a lot of these other companies are very aware of. But they're just not very quick to action because any you know stringent limitations would make it so that uh, you know other creative pursuits would be impossible. Um, so what happened was uh, you know an image of Taylor Swift that was not actually of Taylor Swift, but you know was certainly convincing enough for a lot of folks on Twitter. Um, got shared and was on Twitter for hours before it was pulled by what remains of uh, Twitter's trust and safety organization. Um, and the the problem was so bad and there were so many different versions of that image that had gone around that there was a brief period of time over this past weekend that there were actually no references to Taylor Swift at all on Twitter. They had 100% been purged uh, and you couldn't search for Taylor Swift on, on Twitter because there was just no way to make sure that the image was gone. Yeah, the fake images attracted more than 45 million views. So a lot of people saw these images. A lot of people shared these images. And it appears that... Uh, Microsoft designer may be how these images were created, right? Yeah. So, you know, the the way that this ended up working out was, uh, you know, someone asked ChatGPT for a way to use Microsoft tools to create this image and was essentially given a set of step-by-step instructions. And then the next thing was, can you do, can you follow those instructions for me? Oh. And then it did. Um, because it it was no longer like a direct request in order to have this this image generated. Um, this is again a, a kind of workaround that, that humans is... outsmarting the AI. 
essentially. Yeah, it's really just how you ask in a lot of these cases. It's the same thing. There was a recent story about a, a car dealership accidentally giving cars away for a dollar because someone talked to the chatbot into doing it. Um, you know, there there are versions of this that are you know that are not great. And the problem that we're running into is that a lot of these uh, the the owners of these companies, including Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Um, they acknowledge this as an as an issue, but have no real solutions for fixing it outside of these individual cases, which pop up after it's too late. Yeah, Nadella is actually going to be on NBC Nightly News tonight, I believe, doing an interview where one of the direct quotes is, I think it behooves us to move fast on this, but that doesn't seem to say like what they want to do, how they're going to move quickly. It's just, I know we need to handle this. Yeah, it's unfortunate but unsurprising that Taylor Swift was the, you know, kind of the motivation in order to get this uh, fixed. Now, what Nadella is also going to be able to say tonight is that that uh, particular loophole has been fixed and it's not something that can happen again. But these are exactly the sort of, you know, kind of guardrail rules that uh, OpenAI and Microsoft and, and other companies are refusing to put in place on their own um, because it diminishes the quality of the output of the, the product for things that are not sexually explicit. Um, and they're they're really hoping that someone else, in this case, Congress, uh, will will come in and force them into those guardrails so that they're not losing customers by restricting access to other things. So like you could make a picture of Taylor Swift riding a unicorn and that would be OK. Exactly. Yeah. As long as it's, you know, PG rated and, and, you know, nothing outside of, you know, consent is happening. But at the same time, that really ties back into the concept of, you know, original art created by artificial intelligence. You know, the the photographs that those images are based on, um, you know, someone took that photo of Taylor Swift and owns that photo of Taylor Swift. So when the AI takes, you know, that photographer's work and puts it on a different, you know, AI generated image of a unicorn, there's there's some ownership questions that go in there. And that's a big part of the the lawsuits that Microsoft is working against right this second. We did a segment a couple of weeks ago uh, on Tech Tuesday about some teenagers in New Jersey that got in trouble for doing this to their female classmates. And, you know, perhaps one of the positives to come of this is that because Taylor Swift is such a superstar and so many people are aware of it, I mean, we might see some sort of legislative action. I don't know. It's possible that we'll see some sort of legislative action, but unfortunately, I think the short term, you know, creates a a set of instructions really for more people to do this to people in their immediate sphere of influence, which is uh, not great almost entirely for women. Yeah, I get it just as a woman, as the mother of two daughters, it, it really freaks me out because, you know, Taylor Swift can pretty quickly on a very large platform say, this is not me. These are not real images. I think it might be more difficult for those with less of a public platform. I mean, in, in some cases, it's almost impossible if someone believes the artwork that that goes into it. And, you know, there, Taylor Swift is far from the only celebrity to have to have happened to this. Uh, Billie Eilish um, has responded to several of these images and, and, you know, mostly laughed them off on things like Instagram stories and calling them fake. But it is um, it is a, you know, kind of a continuing issue that that has is not in any way new. Um, so the, the kind of lack of concrete response from these CEOs is kind of troubling. Yeah, X has an explicit ban on this kind of content, and they posted a a public statement a day after the incident, but it still took hours to get it down. Yeah, I mean, this happened on a weekend, uh, for one, and I think there's only like 20 people who still work for, for X. Um, in order to to you know kind of manage this sort of thing, so you know when when 
400,000 people start sharing the exact same image, uh, there, there aren't a lot of levers for that team left to pull um, that, that remain at that organization. It seems that they have traced it back to a specific account on X. Does the person who created these images, are they going to face any kind of legal action? Nothing's been uh, concretely explained, uh, you know, as far as that goes. It's possible that uh, someone on Taylor's team may have been working on a, a legal solution to that. Um, but a so civil far, suit maybe. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Um, it doesn't seem like there have been any uh, long-term consequences for that user on the platform X, um, which is not great. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it is there is they know who it is. Uh, so it's entirely possible that we'll hear more in the future about some actual consequences for that person. I also probably wouldn't want the army of Swifties coming after me. I feel like that's just not a good life choice. Yeah, that's I don't even want to get into how scary that could be. <laughs> I want to switch to Netflix. Last July, Netflix dropped its basic ad-free plan for new subscribers in the U.S. and the U.K., followed that up with a price increase for those who were grandfathered in in October, and now they're planning to end their cheapest basic ad-free option. What What's going on here? Yeah, so not included in, in your amazing rundown uh, is that Netflix decided uh, last year that it really wanted people to pay for their own account and for oh, sharing yeah. away. Uh, and so that basic account was kind of the compromise from Netflix's position is, you know, we now have this cheaper ad-free version that you can use instead of sharing a login with other people. Surely you can pay the, you know, 10 bucks a month or whatever for, for this service and it wouldn't be, you know, kind of a terrible hardship instead of sharing all of these accounts. And now that they have enforced that and they have started uh, kicking people off of accounts if they're, you know, sharing passwords and, and things like that. Now that that enforcement is gone, there's there's no longer a reason to dangle that less expensive carrot out. Um, so the the basic ad free version is is going to go away. That feels like a bait and switch. It sure does, uh, and it seems like the kind of thing that it would be really great if there was some sort of regulation for, but there is currently not. Is it part of this? It feels like it is this larger effort to get people to essentially pay up. And I get it's it's a very millennial thing to like my brother and I shared a Netflix account for years. Like it feels like that one of those like family sharing plans. They really seem to be cracking down on this. Is it are they short on revenue? They're not terribly short on revenue, um, but they are no longer growing. Uh, and so a lot of this from Netflix is you know, viewing what the the landscape is going to be like a year from now. Um, you know, Netflix knows that Apple and Amazon and Disney are all putting enormous amounts of money into creating original things. And they know that the average household only really has two, maybe three of these services. So Netflix, you know, used to be the one that, well, everyone obviously has that. So it's that and something else. But that's not the case anymore. You know, Apple has done a really good job pulling people into, into its service by integrating it into a ton of different things. Um, it's kind of impossible to have kids and not have a Disney Plus subscription right now. Uh, and, and you know, Amazon is, uh, you know, they're, they're Prime in a really- Prime video, it's not bad. Prime video is not bad. Um, and they're, they're investing a ton of money into future projects um, including a fourth wing series and and a bunch of other things that I think are going to draw in a lot of the crowd that used to be very excited about HBO Max. Yeah, and you see those bundles like the Disney Hulu, I think it's Showtime bundle that you can get with all three services. So like sometimes I feel like we're just rebuilding cable digitally, but very much so. 
<laughs> okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that. Um, so what is this going to do to my Netflix bill? How much is it going up? If you were currently paying for the $7 a month uh, basic with ads, uh, it's going to revert um, to the the standard um, non-ad solution, which is uh, $13. Um, and then you'll have options if you choose to upgrade to the the no ad version for 16 bucks or the, you know, super fancy ultra account for $24, I think. And starting next January, wrestling fans in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Latin America will be able to watch Monday Night Raw on Netflix. This is a this is a strange partnership. This is continuing, you know, sports uh, in general has been something that all of these streaming services have been going towards. There was quite a bit of outrage this year that there were uh, certain football games that could only be watched via Apple TV mm. uh, or Paramount Plus. Uh, that, you know, and the same is going to happen with uh, Major League Baseball uh, in, you know, there, there are going to be certain games that are only available on Apple or on, you know, some other streaming service as opposed to broadcast television, which has never happened before. Uh, you know, and so now, uh, you know, wrestling is going to be a part of the the Netflix lineup. And while it's going to be simulcast, this is going to be the first time that Netflix has had a consistent live broadcast uh, in furtherance of your analogy to this being just like cable. Um, this is uh, this is likely going to result in there being, uh, you know, episodes of these shows that only happen on Netflix in the future. That's wild. Also. I haven't really watched like the WWE since like high school when one of my like high school boyfriends was really into it. But like they have millions and millions of viewers. Like it's not it's not a small number of people who tune in for Monday Night Raw. That is very true. And with an enormous amount of the United States population no longer paying for basic cable like that, this is a this is a pretty smart move for them. For both sides, actually. Absolutely. That was Russell Holly, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Thank you so much, as always, for your time today. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this hour of Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. Thank you so much for listening on 89.7 NPR News. And you can catch us on our podcast by searching for Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Just search for All Sides.